Hey folks, welcome back to the show. Today we had a really fun guest who I think is going to bring something a bit different to what we're used to seeing. He's a uh, philosopher who has really recently written an article with uh, Peter Singer of Peter Singer fame on um, the ethics surrounding challenge trials. And I thought that this was very interesting because a little bit later this year, we're going to be going into some of the more philosophical underpinnings of science. And so I thought that this would be a nice sort of a taster discussion about how not all the problems in science can be resolved only or solely through scientific methods themselves, that there are certain philosophical underpinnings to these issues. And um, some of them need to be sort of unraveled using methods that don't solely depend on measurement, modeling, calibration, etc. Um, but I think I've talked too much already. So we'll just go on to our guest. Uh, his name is Richard Yetter Chapel, and um, he wrote a really great article that I think is really interesting on challenge trials and whether that they are sort of ethically permissible for the current COVID-19 climate. So uh, Richard, just to start off, maybe you could just introduce yourself and your research. Sure. So thanks very much for having me here today. So, um, so I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Miami. Um, most of my research is in ethical theory. So I'm uh, mostly thinking about broader ethical principles in more sort of abstract terms, but I'm also interested in their application, especially in cases where they can apply in ways that are kind of maybe surprising or counterintuitive or controversial. And I think um, our topic for today is sort of a nice example, a nice instance of that. We love um, controversy. We statisticians <laughs> do. Great. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's basically what I've been working on recently. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, pretty much everyone's aware of COVID-19 at this point. Um, but uh, just have curiosity, um, and I'll, I'll pop up a picture of the article so everyone can see it and they can reference it. Definitely worth a read. But what sparked uh, your writing of this article? Is it just an application of your own interests? Or um, obviously, it's quite topical and a bit under debate right now. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was definitely um, sort of sparked by um, sort of seeing broader issues going on in the world. I mean, and a big thing for me was actually just sort of feeling a lot of frustration at um, how I saw the general public debate unfolding and particularly like amongst my uh, other academics, philosophers on Facebook. Um, it seemed to me that there was a real disconnect between on the one hand, there being an attitude of um, being sort of very gung-ho about thinking that we need to radically rethink our sort of social ethics and, you know, in the terms of um, social distancing and all of these things which impose very significant costs on large numbers of people in ways that are, you know, very um, different from what people were used to before. Um, so people are on board with quite sort of radical changes there. Um, but then sort of combining that with a seeming sort of more conservative attitude towards the ethics of sort of bio um, medical research and so forth and people being um, quite sort of hesitant about the permissibility of doing um, things that might involve deliberately infecting people with the disease even in ways that could prove socially beneficial. And so it was particularly that disconnect um, that seemed to me kind of unprincipled that I wanted to push back on. So I emailed Peter Singer about it and sort of shared some ideas and saw that we were on a similar page and what we thought about it. And so we worked towards um, first making an op-ed that we got published in the Washington Post and then expanding it into the academic article. Cool. Well, I think a lot of people, of course, be a bit flabbergasted that you'd possibly accuse clinical science of being at all conservative or slow moving in any way. <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm not sure. It's probably not the scientists' fault. Um, it, it might be uh, the ethicists that are holding them back. But um, but there does seem to be. I mean, I think it's sort of, in some ways, somewhat surprising that there hasn't 
been more sort of pressure to have challenge trials already occurring. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the reasons uh, for them soon, but uh, it's, it does seem like there's a really strong case to be made, and, and yet there seems to be not a lot of um, progress being made to actually make it happen. And so that, that's sort of my worry. Yeah, definitely. Actually, the main thing I latched on to there was that we now have a new excuse for my own work being slow. It's that ethicists are slowing me down. <laughs> um, but yeah, cool. So um, just for those who are unfamiliar, maybe we should just start off with um, what is a challenge trial? Because a lot of people, I guess, aren't even really familiar that this is a, um, you know, uh, a method that's in our sort of clinical scientific toolkit. Yeah, absolutely. So the essence of a challenge trial is that it involves deliberately exposing uh, human participants to a virus, um, which you know sounds like a strange thing to do. Why would you want to do that? Um, but the, um, the basic case for it, especially as it applies to vaccine testing, is that it allows you to um, vastly increase the sort of speed and efficacy of getting the results of testing whether the vaccine works um, compared to a standard trial, uh, field trial, where you just sort of you know give half the participants the vaccine, the others not, and then wait and see how many people from each group end up getting infected over the next you know six months or more. Um, it can be a lot faster if you just after giving them the vaccine, you know, the one group in the control not, um, then deliberately, directly infect them with the virus and see the results then. You don't need to wait so long. So it allows for much faster results. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, first of all, a, a very important clarification when we say when we're talking about exposing uh, human subjects to the virus. You know, I think a lot of people have this a bit of an, an inoculation view, like that like 18th century inoculation type view of these things where, well, aren't we already being exposed to the virus? And it's like, well, mechanistically, no, not really on that level. And the idea is that we, you are essentially giving somebody something akin to some moderated dose of the, the real deal. Exactly. And um, seeing if that the immune response that was supposed to be elicited by the original vaccine is now sufficient to protect them from, you know, uh, the real Developing game. symptoms. Yeah. Great. Cool. And um, so I, I'm sure most people have probably intuited a bit what your uh, your position is, but maybe you could just sort of flesh it out or give the main points. You know, what was the position that you and Peter Singer were taking? Yeah, so the essence of our position um, is this principle of risk parity, where the idea is that if it's permissible to expose certain members of society to certain risks in the course of their pandemic, that might include, you know, health workers who uh, are under a significant amount of risk, and also um, sort of non-medical risks of harms that are um, that people are subject to as a result of, you know, losing their jobs, not being able to uh, go out to work because of needing to abide by social distancing protocols. So all of those kind of risks that we impose um, in order to help fight the pandemic, if those are permissible in one sort of context or situation, the thought would, uh, the basic thought of the principle is that a similar or comparable level of risk should be permissible to also apply within the context of a medical trial that could similarly be useful for helping to fight the pandemic. And so the then application of it is then that even though there is some risk involved to participants in a challenge trial, you know, they're exposed to this potentially lethal virus, um, some um, participants in the trial could end up getting very ill. Um, depending on how it's done, hopefully not too many, but uh, there is that genuine risk there. But the argument is it's comparable to the risks that other people in society are facing, and it could be even more valuable to help fight the pandemic. So the argument is there's not a deep principled um, ethical objection um, to allowing people to voluntarily choose to undergo those risks. Yeah, and I think especially one of the interesting points of this is that um, by virtue of being a pandemic and there's no way that you can truly shut yourself off from it, except me, I've actually succeeded at pretty much shutting myself off from the entire world. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, but actually, that's how I lived anyway. Um, but yeah, um, it's the idea that among many issues that there's an inherent risk already being uh, a potential uh, trial participant is already being exposed to these risks. Um, and as, as nature sort of takes its course, and that by allowing them to uh, participate in a clinical trial, not only are you expediting some of the benefits and the scientific discovery process, but they aren't actually undertaking any greater risk because this would have eventually come been, come knocking on their door anyway. And I guess the further bit is that by virtue of being under a clinical trial, they have the benefit of supervision, um, further clinical intervention if things become too aggressive. So I guess you can sort of consider it as a uh, sort of a right tail censoring of the m most strong adverse events where they would be by virtue of being under monitoring. Um, you know, you, you could be sort of censoring those most extreme adverse events. Yeah, absolutely. So there is that nice argument for why it could be beneficial for some of the participants that if they would have ended up getting sick anyway, at least in this context, they're in a very controlled setting where they can get the best of medical care identified early on um, with aggressive intervention that could help to avoid, as you suggest, the worst outcomes. Um, it's tricky to it's tricky to make the case that everyone in the trial could expect to have overall better results because right. obviously, you know, some members wouldn't have, would have, you know, they could have expected to avoid the virus altogether um, through, you know, careful social distancing and so forth. So I think there is an overall increase, plausibly an overall increase in ex-ante risk, um, but maybe that's compensated for by, as you suggest, the lowering the, the sort of the tail end worst outcomes. Yeah. Um, uh, and as, you just used well an awesome term, I, I was ex-ante risk. Could you, uh, could you describe that to us? Yes, yes, sorry. So ex-ante risk is just meaning sort of um, the, the risk that you face um, as evaluated before it happens. So given what you know at the time, um, your ex-ante risk might be low, even if something ends up happening that's, um, that's detrimental and that's bad. Um, so as far as sort of making assessments based on, given that we have only partial information at any given time, um, the only thing that we are really in a position to do is to evaluate the ex-ante risk, the risk given that earlier information, and see, you know, is the overall risk that the person faces is it greater or lesser or moderately comparable in these sort of ex-ante terms? Great. Well, I'm going to start using that word as if you never taught it to me. and I just picked up it, you know, <laughs> my, my usual reading, but yeah, great. And so now we've talked a bit, the arguments, um, is the, what are sort of the alternative positions? Is it simply, um, a negation of sort of the, the points and it's just an alternative is do not, or, um, you know, are there divergence on different points in this? You, do you and Peter Singer sort of differ on where some sort of decision boundaries might be? What are the counter arguments? Yeah, interesting. So I know in my discussions with Peter about the issue, I haven't really come across any, any points where we're in really any stark disagreement, at least on this practical um, issue here. So I think we're, we're looking at it pretty similarly. Um, but there's definitely room for people to be on board with um, sort of challenge trials in general, like maybe for, um, for less risky, uh, for less harmful, kinds of viruses, um, but to be concerned about one that's potentially lethal as the coronaviruses and think maybe that's just too risky. And I guess their argument would be that um, that researchers maybe have a special duty of care to their research participants to not expose them to significant risk. And that maybe according to those ethicists would outweigh our more general obligation to society and to reducing the, the total toll of the pandemic. Um, I think that ethical perspective is misguided. I, I think we should be more concerned about I mean, I think we should be concerned about everyone and not just um, not just a little sort of handful of people and just particularly if they're volunteering to help, I think that um, we should sort of embrace uh, that help where we can get it. 
Yeah, that's actually, that's a, yet again, an, another interesting part that there's sort of, uh, I guess, a little bit of a balancing act, because I was thinking that much of the objection to a challenge trial would be that if the virus is of insufficiently high risk, that it wouldn't be worthwhile because you want to go through your nice clinical steps. Um, whereas, you know, obviously on the other end, it's if the risk of exposure to the virus is sufficiently high, obviously you don't want to be, uh, you know, nuking people or anything. Um, and that, so it's sort of that, that balancing act where people, I guess, would be more comfortable with a challenge trial within certain risk parameters, neither too high or neither too low. Yeah, that sounds right. As far as sort of trying to pin down the kind of common sense response here, it does seem like yeah, you've sort of nicely pinned down the risks on either side there in terms of what people might might object to. Just uh, as a quick aside, as a philosopher, are the are the common sense responses? I mean, presumably that's much of what you have to contend with when dealing with the public. Mm -hmm. That uh, it's a it's a series of uh, common sense objections and responses, and that you want to make sure that uh, your argument sort of lands in the in that common sense zone. Yeah, I mean, this to some extent. I mean, you want you you don't want people to just dismiss what you're saying as seeming like outlandish, you know, mm -hmm. crazy philosopher talk. Um, so you want to be able to engage with the common sense concerns and explain why you know you're able to address them as well as you can. On the other hand, um, I wouldn't want to be just entirely beholden to common sense intuitions. I think part of the role of sort of philosophers and ethical theorists is to try to um, appeal to broader principles, which can show why some of our initial intuitions and responses might actually be kind of biased or misguided. Um, and so if we can say things that can lead people to actually change their minds or to reconsider their initial assumptions, I think that can be valuable too. Yeah. So I guess it's helping people move beyond the, the idea of, I guess, the common sense consideration is one that's intuitively um, gratifying in some way, and that you do need to make movement beyond uh, this intuition in order to make real discoveries um, that our little primate brains might not come to originally. Um, exactly, yeah. So moving beyond just the gut reactions to seeing what is more systematically justifiable. Oh, cool. And I guess that's something that you uh, have in common with statisticians and that we try to uh, peel back at least a few layers um, so that we aren't um, reliant on just intuition alone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I... One of the issues is that um, that I was interested in is that there's this sort of utilitarian benefit to the argument um, that you know the just uh, again to use that common sense thing that the benefits outweigh the costs of this. Um, but you've also brought into this idea of patient consent that you know the idea that is if a patient is one informed of the risks and two you know cognizant of the potential benefits that the research is then on stronger ethical footing. And I was just curious. Um, is a patient consenting to the informed risk sufficient from your position uh, to make this ethically acceptable? Yeah, so I mean, I think that's a tricky one. So, I mean, I do it's think that trap. it's maybe the most important or like the, the, the most salient ethical factor that's gonna go a long way to preventing unethical research. So we talk a bit in our paper about how the sort of, um, many of the, the sort of traditional examples of unethical research in the 20th century involved gross violations of informed consent. And so informed consent would suffice to avoid those really bad outcomes. Um, I would hesitate to say that it's completely sufficient just on its own. I mean, I don't sort of want to take a stand either way. Maybe it could be, but, you know, there are definitely cases where, where people would raise concerns. So, you know, you could have someone who's in a very high risk group, for example, where you might think, well, you know, wouldn't it make more sense to choose participants who are in a lower risk, uh, lower risk group? Um, there can be worries about um, whether people might um, be in some sense sort of 
under some kind of internal compulsion to help. So I know that people have raised objections, for example, to um, if someone has had a relative die of an illness, um, maybe um, maybe you shouldn't be um, accepting that patient uh, as, as that person to then be a participant. Um, I'm actually not committed to wanting to rule that out. I, I think that's maybe a bit paternalistic. And if someone wants to honor the memory of a loved one by trying to fight the virus that killed them, then, then I personally would think that maybe we should allow that. Um, but you'd want to be—you'd want to make sure that they understood the risks that they were undertaking, um, that it truly was informed consent, and that they weren't just rushing into it um, without really considering the risks. Yeah, I guess, and I, you've just led to a very good point, which is the idea of understanding the risks, and you know human beings generally sort of struggle to understand issues like probability and risk and things like that, which is why they employ data scientists and statisticians um, to waggle their finger at them on these issues. Um, <laughs> and actually, I think it was, it might've been Laplace who said something, maybe someone can pop this up in the comment section, but it, it, it is the idea where like, uh, a, a human being's capacity for rationality seems to dissipate the moment, you know, probability and risk and uncertainty is brought into the equation. And so I guess uh, one of the questions is, you know, to what extent are people able to, human beings are like almost categorically struggle to understand the issues of risk. And it doesn't matter if you have a PhD in mathematics or statistics or anything else, like, or if you're a five-year-old kid, we really struggle to understand risk um, as a concept and act in a rational fashion due to it. Um, but is there one of the ethical challenges in this is, of course, you have to um, overcome this comprehension of risk and make sure that you've sufficiently informed a person, you know, obviously yeah. awareness of the risk and awareness of people's inability to understand risk is not sufficient to help them overcome their ability to understand risk. I guess it's like the GI Joe fallacy where like knowing is half the battle. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it, which it isn't, you know, knowing that humans aren't good at understanding these concepts is not the same as having under overcome a human's ability to understand the concept. So I guess I'm a little uh, curious if, what are your thoughts on the issue that it's hard to help someone understand risk? Yeah, no, it is an incredibly tricky issue. Um, and I don't really have the expertise to, to, to know how to address the practicalities of that so well. I imagine that you and your readers probably have more, uh, you and your listeners have more of an idea of, of how to deal with that. I guess things like explaining the risk in terms of frequencies rather than just percentages and stuff like that can kind of help people to understand it somewhat. Um, I'm sure medical researchers who do these experiments know a lot more about how best to communicate it. Um, I guess from an ethical perspective, my, aside from the practicalities of how best to do that, um, I think there's an interesting question about how concerned should we be about our inability to really assure ourselves with certainty that the participants are fully informed and truly understand the risks. Um, to what extent does the ethics of informed consent depend on like perfect understanding or what degree of understanding is sufficient to make it ethical? Um, so I think that's a very difficult question. Um, I mean, I think the, in a sense, the most important thing is going to be to make sure that the participants all at least have a general understanding of what's going to happen to them. They understand that they're going to be exposed to this virus. They know, you know, anyone who's been watching the news knows that there's a significant amount of risk to the virus. Um, and so that needs to be communicated to them as well that, you know, they are being exposed to this. And so they will be facing that risk, whether they are able to understand like quantitatively exactly the, mm -hmm. what the risk amounts to. I don't know to what extent 
that kind of detailed knowledge is going to be essential. Um, I think the most important thing would be to ensure that the participants all understand that there is sort of significant risk there. If they're not comfortable with it, they shouldn't participate in the trial. If they don't feel like they have a good understanding of the risk, they might want to bow out of the trial. Um, but if they're willing to go ahead, given how well that, given their understanding of the risk, however, you know, incomplete or inadequate that might be, um, including, you know, uncertainties about whether they might be in some kind of high-risk group without realizing it and all these sorts of things. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainties. If they're okay with that uncertainty and they're willing to go ahead regardless, um, then ultimately that's sort of the responsibility is then on that individual to have made that decision for themselves. And I think as long as the researchers have sort of done a good faith attempt to communicate as well as they can their understanding of the risk to the participants, um, that's really the best we can hope for. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, to like be ruling out um, like disallowing research just on the basis of like, we can't communicate it perfectly. I think we just need to do it in good faith. And then, you know, people are responsible for making their own decisions after that point. Yeah. And I guess also the issue of perfect communication would also be a little bit reliant on the idea that you've actually perfectly calculated what the risk would be anyway. And since that is, frankly, like scientifically laughable that for exactly. any given person, you've actually found the risk, which is basically the purpose of the research anyway, to actually understand what these differentials and risk are. Um, you know, obviously for a clinical trial, the idea would be there's a risk differential between the person who has had the vaccination and the person who has not. Uh, but there's also further elements of, you know, the differentials in the um, effect size of affliction of the disease, for example, which risk group that they're in, whether or not you're going to be an asymptomatic carrier versus a um, someone who, you know, suffers a fatal heart attack or fatal respiratory failure um, due to that. Yeah, but yeah, that's cool. And I guess um, just to round out the issue is, you know, um, when we get back to the, you know, the common sense perspective of cost versus benefits of this, um, would there be any reason to believe that it's necessary for the patient to understand the benefits as well? I don't really see why that would be ethically necessary. It certainly seems like it would be sort of useful uh, to yeah. make sure other participants know why it could be worthwhile for them to engage in the study. For one thing, that might encourage you know more of them to agree to go along with it. Yeah, great um, recruitment technique. So yeah, it's definitely worth doing. Um, but you know, if if someone either declines to participate because they didn't fully grasp the possible benefits, or they do participate even though it's even better than they realized, I think either of those outcomes is sort of morally okay. Um, it's just you know the better they understand it, including the possible benefits, you know, the better. Yeah. It's a bonus. Yeah. I guess the only one that would be truly objectionable is if the benefits were vastly overstated such that the patient then couldn't weigh their own personal risk against it. So, um, yes. yeah. Yeah. So if they came in with beliefs about the benefits that were inaccurate, um, that would definitely need to be corrected. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So it's like the vaccine will not only protect you for COVID-19, it'll also make you taller, better looking, <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. Obviously, we can't be doing that. But um, if it's exactly. relegated to the medical benefits, great, cool. Um, and so I guess another issue that is of interest is presumably a study that has, you know, a high chance of inconclusive results would also be considered either unethical or bordering on ethical or a sort of ethically suspect, because if there's no scientific benefit to weigh against the risk of the individual, um, I, I guess we've sort of been hitting on this on an individual level, but I guess now the question is from a full study perspective, um, that we'd have, if we had a study that has a high chance of inconclusivity, we consider it unethical. 
But right now, you know, one of the most promising vaccines coming out is the one from the Oxford, uh, you know, the Jenner Institute at Oxford. And um, they've publicly discussed the potential shortage of exposed patients and how that could affect the uh, conclusiveness of the study. So um, obviously that, that's a statement, but it's a fairly open one. Do you have any comments on, on that issue that obviously this could help address that? Yeah, so I mean, it definitely seems like a, a, a good candidate for, for moving to challenge trials if they're having difficulty um, thinking that in an ordinary um, field trial, there would be enough people ending up getting exposed to the virus in order to get the results they need. Um, so, so there's sort of a pragmatic case there. In terms of whether um, the, the high chance of inconclusive results would make the trial as a whole unethical, like that it would be better to have not even done the trial at all, I'd be hesitant to go that far because it might be that given how incredibly valuable it would be to get conclusive results, even if there's only a small chance of getting that immense benefit of like, you know, finally being able to solve the pandemic, um, even a small chance of that is, is worth it, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's gonna depend on the risks. If it's an extremely high chance, like you've got no chance at all of getting any results, then yeah, then there'd be no point. Yeah, so I guess one of the issues is uh, from sort of a statistical perspective is that if you could have a chance at a very high um, effect size, such that it would mitigate the chance, the risk due to a lower population or a lower study population, then that could sort of help you along the way. Exactly. So, yeah. So decision theorists talk about this um, concept of expected value, where you basically are multiplying through the um, the potential magnitude of the benefit um, in proportion to the probability that it'll occur. And so like a certainty of a moderate benefit has basically the same expected value as like a one in 10th chance of 10 times the benefit. It just sort of multiplies out. Cool. Well, I know that in um, medical domains, we're heavily oriented towards, you know, the removal of type one statistical errors, the removal of false positive conclusions. And they're obviously undesirable from a treatment perspective because due to many of the issues surrounding the administration of a treatment that doesn't work, um, that you don't want to administer a treatment that doesn't work for the patient. Um, and there's something of this, you know, visceral element that you could think about that um, from the perspective that the treatment provider is financially gaining from the ineffective treatment. So I think that's sort of, it's an additional element um, to this that particularly is a little bit of a burr in our, our side. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also type two errors, which are the, you know, the false ne negative conclusions are more broadly, you could call it the failure to identify a viable treatment. Um, and so in a lot of medical fields and medical statisticians, we tend to be very, very focused. You know, we acknowledge both um, because it's impossible not to acknowledge them. It's a nice little table. We can see where each little conclusion falls, but um, still uh, there's a very heavy focus on avoiding type one errors. Uh, Type two errors. Um, well, uh, I'll leave. I'll leave. I'll leave the assessment of type two errors to other people. But uh, the idea is that um, it's not quite as visceral for a variety of reasons beyond just basic probability issues. Um, but I'm curious if do ethicists tend to concern themselves with you know a type one error versus a type two error, for example? You know, are there inherent differences in these different types of errors? Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely some um, 
some theorists who would accept principles that would lead to a sort of differentiation here. Um, I don't, and I'll explain why not in a moment, but, um, but that the sort of um, theorists I have in mind are people who accept a strong kind of doing allowing distinction, who think that it's much worse to do something that causes a harm to someone than it is to fail to benefit them. And so if you have this asymmetry between harming and failing to benefit, you can kind of see how this would carry over to this medical context of saying, well, uh, applying a treatment to someone that doesn't work and then leads them to, you know, maybe act more recklessly and end up getting ill when they otherwise wouldn't have, um, you've caused a harm to them in effect, compared to merely failing to identify a successful treatment or vaccine, and as a result, you know, not being, failing to benefit people, um, it sort of is judged as not as morally serious an issue. Um, so people do, do sort of draw on that, and I, and I think sort of, um, there are some sort of common sense grounds for this that a lot of people psychologically will think that there does seem to be a difference between the two cases. Um, my inclination is very much more to think that what matters is just the magnitudes of the harms and benefits to people at the end of the day. And if you're missing out on a possible cure, that can be a very serious matter indeed. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of ongoing harms that are happening that could be prevented if we could, you know, find a cure, find a vaccine. Um, and so I think we should be very worried about, um, about the type two errors as well as the type one ones. Um, and so I, I wouldn't want, you know, I, I sort of see it as something of a prejudice to, to think that they, um, to think that uh, doing is so much more serious than allowing or that, um, that harming is so much worse than failing to benefit. I really think we should do what's best overall. Cool. And for those who are using a bit more of a, I guess, a layman's term of utilitarianism, is that is that well aligned with the idea of uh, utilitarianism where there's you're more or less um, nebulous between harms and benefits that are proactively taken versus harms and benefits that are not, that are the result of inaction? Yes, exactly. So, so the sort of utilitarian uh, moral perspective is the kind of one that I'm channeling here and saying that, yeah, what matters at the end of the day is just the actual outcomes, the magnitudes of the harms and benefits, um, but harms and benefits themselves are kind of morally symmetrical in their significance. You should be just as concerned about um, the loss of a benefit as you would be about the imposition of a harm. Um, and so, yeah, they, they all sort of count equally from this moral perspective. Cool. And I guess with the uh, utilitarian account for the fact of the great benefit to someone, you know, selling an ineffective treatment, you know, I guess th that that uh, that benefit never gets really taken into effect, does it? That uh, <laughs> you might have your own private island for selling an ineffective treatment. Um, so regardless of the harm you did, you know, you got to factor in that one little person. Too. Yeah, I mean, it would probably be a pretty small, you know, if it's just Very one small. person compared to the amount of harm they're doing, but um, I guess it would count for something. Yeah, you got, you got to make sure that those uh, weights are balanced. <laughs> Great. Well, Richard, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today um, and also just being so fast about uh, your replies and uh, getting, getting this recorded. But um, is uh, what would you suggest if people were more interested? We're going to pop up the, uh, the article. It's going to be, um, I'll, show, I'll show a picture of it right now. And it's also going, a link is going to be in the uh, comment section in the video description. But if people are interested in learning a little bit more about the subjects, uh, what would you suggest is a, you know, a practical first reading? Would it be practical ethics or what would it be? Yeah, I mean, so Peter Singer's Practical Ethics is a great, um, a great sort of introduction to people interested in, in applying sort of ethical principles and thinking about ethics in a really systematic way. Um, for anyone interested in following up on this particular issue in a bit more detail, I'd recommend um, just checking out the, um, the One Day Sooner website where they actually have a research section as well, where they have a research paper where they've sort of looked at um, the, the sort of the pros and cons of challenge trials in a bit more detail. And I think that's a very interesting read as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, actually, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I forgot to mention One Day Sooner uh, throughout 
about this. So yeah, we will all pop up a quick picture of that website right now and uh, conclude that as a referenced um, website where people are proactively, uh, for those who aren't familiar with, it's people are proactively signing up as volunteers for something, um, either a challenge trial or simply the a non-challenge vaccination trial anyway. Um, and I guess that there are also elements of this where uh, when people are looking at multiple potential vaccines that if you need a pop patient population that can cover the gamut of potential uh, so uh, the potential treatments that people are signing up so that a multitude of trials can be well populated um, and, and tested. So great. Richard, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate yeah. it. Well, thanks very much for the chat. It was great fun. Great. <laughs> hey, see you later. Hey folks, it's Glenn. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pod of Asclepius. If so, please consider leaving a like, a comment, and hitting that subscribe and bell button for a small channel and every bit helps. If you have a department, a lab, or even just friends who would like this episode, definitely forward it along. I don't have any of those things, but if you do, you should definitely celebrate by sending them an episode. We've got plenty of episodes on healthcare topics, particularly on data science and machine learning, so check out the other episodes on the channel or some of the playlists. You can also check out our website to join our mailing list or see our sponsors. Thanks so much to our sponsors for their support. And while the views discussed on the show are undoubtedly scintillating, they don't necessarily represent the views of our sponsors, the speaker's employer, my views, your views, my neighbor's cat's views, your cat's views, or anyone else not saying the words. In fact, they might not even represent the speaker's views by the time you're hearing it, so be sure to subscribe in case they come back onto the show to change their mind. See what I did there? Thanks again. <laughs>